Good morning. Let me pray for us. Thank you, God, for the majesty of your word. And I ask that by your spirit, you would show us how to navigate our relationships and identities to be your holy people. Amen. So we have nearly come to the end of this Eastertide series, and while there will be one more concluding sermon on July 16th, the passage that we're looking at today is really the last sort of big chunk of text that we'll be working through. And I'd like to read it all the way through, and then today actually work backwards through it, because I think that has helped me understand how Paul's statements fit together kind of with themselves here and also within the context of the larger letter, the stuff that we've covered so far. So we're going to begin at first Corinthians, or sorry, 2 Corinthians 6, um, 11. It says, We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and open wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. Do not be yoked together with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? What fellowship can light have with darkness? What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? Or what does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So as he often does, Paul's evoking an entire world of Old Testament scripture with these concise quotes. And we'll look at some of it, but if you'd like some very in-depth treatments of some of the ideas that we'll be talking about today, I'd point you to Greg Beale's books, um, the New Testament, uh, he's got one that's New Testament Biblical Theology, another one called The Temple and the Church's Mission. And that book was converted into a, a much less technical and more accessible version in uh, a book he co-wrote with a pastor friend of his called, called God Dwells Among Us, Expanding Eden to the Ends of the Earth. So there's lots and lots and lots of stuff you can dig into if this kinds of stuff interests you. But in any case, Beal argues that the Bible describes the world in terms of a cosmic temple. Okay, and human beings, God's images, fill the role of priest kings. So on the priestly side, 
Genesis 2.15 tells us that Adam was put in the garden to avad, which is to serve, to work, or to cultivate it, and shamar, to keep, guard, or take care of it. And Beale says that when those two words occur together in the Old Testament within approximately a 15-word range, they refer either to Israelites serving God and guarding or keeping God's word, that happens approximately 10 times, or to priests who keep the service or charge of the tabernacle. So it's priestly language. On the kingly side, as we've seen, Genesis 1.28 tells us that Adam and Eve, created in God's image, were told to subdue the earth and to rule over the creatures that God had created. Okay? So there's a priestly and a kingly dimension to human beings in God's cosmic temple. So in the Sermon on Glory, we saw how the idea of glory is related to God's shining presence, as well as our human vocation to rule over creation, that kingly aspect. We also saw how the combination of idolatry and injustice cause God's glory to depart. The loss of that glory because of sinful idolatry and the injustice that is at the heart, um, and the injustice that accompanies it, that's at the heart of what's wrong with us, what's wrong with the world. It's at the heart of what needs to be made right. And so that brings us to another major theme in the Bible, which is the theme of covenant. Okay, the way that God sets about making things right, restoring the glory of his image bearers, to be priest kings in creation, is by establishing covenants with his people. Some of the most notable covenants are the covenant with Abraham, the covenant with Israel, the covenant with David, and we've already talked about the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about that he promised in Jeremiah 31. And so as you trace these themes of God's image-bearing priest kings and the covenants that God makes, you begin to see some important overlap between those concepts. And one way to see that is by looking at uses of what biblical scholar Rolf Rentdorf calls the covenant formula. The covenant formula is the phrase, I will be your God, and you will be my people. Most woodenly, I will be to you for a God, and you will be to me for a people. And Rentorf says that when that formula occurs in scripture, it's being consciously applied to explain the actual content of the covenant. It's about the relationship that that covenant is intended to create, to produce. Now, both sides of that formula, I will be your God, you'll be my people, both sides of that are significant, and either one can serve as a kind of shorthand for the other. And so um, he calls, you know, in, in this list that I've got up on the slide, he denotes the first part, I will be your God, is the A form of the formula. You will be my people is the B form, and the full formula, which is the most significant, is the C form. And so whenever you see any of these, it should immediately flag that what's in view here is covenant, okay? The covenant that God's established with his people. It's used kind of at the most critical points talking about covenant in the Bible. So we can look at some of those. Um, the first ones labeled here are the B form, and it occurs with God's covenant with Abraham in Genesis 17. 
which says, No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. So this is obviously a critical covenantal text, and the, the covenant formula occurs twice here. And look what else shows up, right? We've got language about being fruitful, which, is evokes, which evokes Genesis 1, and the notion that kings will come from Abraham. Another place, the first place that the full covenant formula comes up is in Exodus 6, where God says to Moses, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. So we've got the covenant formula there, and while the priest-king language doesn't come up in this specific passage, look at what happens when this idea is revisited after God's deliverance in Exodus 19. God says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So the priestly and the kingly dimensions are kind of fused there into one for this covenant people, and it's coupled with the idea of them being a holy nation. The next place the full covenant formula occurs is in Leviticus 26. God's given them the law, and he says, if you follow my decrees and are careful to obey my commands, I will look on you with favor and make you fruitful and increase your numbers, and I will keep my covenant with you. You will be eating last year's harvest when you will have to move it out to make room for the new. I will put my dwelling place among you, and I will not abhor you. I will walk among you and be your God, and you will be my people. So again, we've got covenant explicitly referenced. We've got the covenant formula in its full form. We've got this language of being fruitful and multiplying, evoking that vocation of the Edenic priest kings. All right, so there's only 30 of these passages left to go. You guys are nervous. That's a credible threat. <laughs> um, I'm actually just going to look at one more. Um, we've seen the covenant with Abraham. We've seen two with Israel that have the full formula, and we've already talked in the series about Jeremiah 31. So the other one that we're going to look at today that has the full formula is in 2 Samuel 7. 
So this is the story where David said, how, how is it that I live in a palace while the ark of God remains in a tent? And he expresses a desire to build a temple for God, a house, he says. And God's response is essentially, really, I never, I never asked for a house, you know. But he's, nonetheless, he's pleased with David's heart. And so he continues by saying, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And here's how it goes. He says, when your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. All right, so now that covenantal formula is applied to David's son, okay, whose house or line God promises will be established forever. And obviously we've got the kingly dimension here in full view since we're talking about the family that God installed as actual kings, right? So it's time to now come back to our passage in 2 Corinthians 6. And we're going to start at the end of it, like I said. So what Paul has done, he's instructed the Corinthians not to be yoked with unbelievers immediately before this. And he appeals to these Old Testament scriptures in support. And he includes some of the ones that we've looked at. In particular, we've looked at these two full covenant formula passages. One from Leviticus 26 and one from 2 Samuel 7. And what God has done with these covenants, remember, was to create a holy people, a people set apart for his purposes. And that holiness, that set-apartness from the other nations who worshipped false gods, that mattered because idolatry and the injustice that accompanies it were precisely the problem that the covenants were implemented to fix. Time and time again, history had shown that Israel could not be God's people if they were worshiping idols. Those two things were mutually exclusive identities. Turning to false images, oppressing God's true images, was precisely what caused God's glory to depart what made it impossible to exercise God's benevolent rule as his image-bearing priest kings in creation. And so if that was true for Israel, it was certainly also true for Paul's churches. Because he sees these covenants as ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus was the descendant of Abraham that had brought blessing to the nations. Jesus was the true and faithful Israelite. Jesus was the Davidic or Messianic king whose throne God had established forever. Jesus is the one whose life and ministry all the covenants had been initialized to bring about. Jesus was the one who had restored the image and glory of God 
to human beings as the true priest king. And so as we've talked about so much, those who put their faith in Jesus, those who have died with Christ and been raised with him, Those people, we who are in Christ, participate in all these same realities through him. And that's why Peter applies Exodus 19 to those who have believed in Jesus. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's why Paul applies Leviticus 26 to the Corinthians here. I will be your God and you will be my people. And that's why most shockingly he applies 2 Samuel 7 to them. I will be a father to you and you will be my sons and daughters. Now I want to dwell on that quote here in verse 18 for a minute because this was the promise given to David in the language of the full covenantal formula that God will establish the throne of his descendant as king forever. God would be in a special covenant relationship with David's descendant. I will be his father and he will be my son. And Christians, of course, see this as fulfilled in Jesus. But what's so radical about what Paul has done here is that he's taken that passage and he's changed the language a little bit. He's broadened it. He's changed it from, I will be his father, and he will be my son, to, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters. That isn't an English translation of a general Greek word, the way that we sometimes translate Adelphoi as brothers and sisters, rather than just brothers. No, the Greek has, huias kai thugaterdas, sons and daughters. In Christ, as men and women, we all participate in the holy messianic king. What an identity, right? And so for me, this is what opens up the rest of the passage that we're looking at today. It's all about identity. Because that's where Paul ends up here. So these covenants are, you know, the primary defining traits of the identity of the people of Israel. And this is going to have implications for what relationships with the pagan culture around them will be appropriate. The reason that Paul says not to be yoked to unbelievers is because of how it can compromise their identity in Christ, through which they participate in all these promises. And so that said, okay, to anyone familiar with the Corinthian correspondence, Paul's words about not being unequally yoked with unbelievers should at least give us pause. Because in 1 Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul had instructed them not to associate with believers unrepentantly practicing gross immorality. But then he said he didn't mean unbelievers, since to do that you'd have to leave the world. In 1 Corinthians 7, he'd instructed believers married to unbelievers to remain married if it was up to them. In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul also talks about becoming all things to all people. 
to those not having the law, he became as one not having the law, that he might by all means save some, he said. In 1 Corinthians 10, he's clearly open to eating meat offered to idols at table with unbelievers, as long as that isn't brought up and centered. He says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. So even if there are differences, right, between the kinds of association and communion, in these examples, right, there are different nuances between what he says there, what he says here. They're certainly in tension with one another. Okay, these things are certainly in tension with the idea not to be yoked with unbelievers. And so that brings us to where Paul does draw the line, which is when he gets to participatory practices, particularly those having to do with idolatry. In 1 Corinthians 10, he said, Do I mean then that food sacrificed to an idol is anything, or that an idol is anything? No. But the sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. You've got some mutually exclusive things there. And so I think participation and identity are the most helpful principles for figuring out how to apply these passages today. Relationships are identity forming. And the more this is the case with a particular relationship, the more the appropriateness of that relationship needs to be subjected to scrutiny. Okay? If a relationship is fundamental to our understanding you know, of this is who I am, then I'd say it probably qualifies for what Paul has in mind when he talks about being unequally yoked. So we can and we must participate in different communities and relationships that, that define us in one way or another. And this can and should often be with unbelievers. I don't think that we can effectively be on mission without that. Okay? I'm a coach, I'm a teacher, I'm a nurse, I'm a Republican or a Democrat. I'm an artist, I'm an activist, a Vermonter, entrepreneur, environmentalist, on and on and on it goes, right? But the way that we navigate these identities, the relationships that we enter to do so, and the way that we allow them to define us must be compatible with our primary identity in and our allegiance to Jesus. And so I think this is how what Paul says here about not you know, being unequally yoked fits into the wider context of the letter. Everything important about us that he's talked about so far is rooted in our identity in Christ. Okay? We are members of the new covenant and the new creation. We have the glory and image of God restored to us. We share in resurrection life. We are the righteousness of God. We share in the victory and the salvation of the Lamb. We are a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We are sons and daughters of God in Christ. All those things are because we are in Christ. 
all of those are rooted in that identity. And so no identity or allegiance, no association or communion can be allowed to challenge our identity in Christ. If we are in others in such a way that causes our worldview, our posture, our beliefs, or our actions to diverge from those that are part of being in Christ, then we are unequally yoked. In this letter, that is especially rejecting the cross-shaped way of life that Jesus calls us to. Any participation in other communities or identities must be secondary to Christ. And differentiation from some communities and identities will be necessary. And so I think that's what connects with the first few verses today. So let's step back and look at those. Paul says, We've spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children. Open wide your hearts also. So the question is, what's the relationship between these words, Paul's, you know, imploring them to open their hearts to him, and being unequally yoked with unbelievers, which is what immediately follows. There's a kind of jolt between those two things. And it's enough of a jolt that it's caused some people to think that what Paul says about being unequally yoked to unbelievers is actually something from another of his letters that's found its way into this one. Okay, but I think there's actually a coherence to be found here. And so as, as we've seen often, what Paul is doing in the letter as a whole is he's defending his others-centered, self-giving ministry against the charges of the super-apostles. And so it, what it would actually make sense for him to do is, after saying, you know, open wide your hearts to me, if he followed that with, don't be unequally yoked with the super-apostles, that would kind of logically fit with what he's been saying so far. But that's not what he does. What he says is he tells them not to be yoked to unbelievers. Because of this, some people think that the unbelievers is a reference to the super-apostles, but there are strong reasons why that is probably not the case. That's very unlikely. And so why this weird and sudden change of, change of subject? There's a great article by David Starling that proposes a connection between the super-apostles and unbelievers that I think makes sense of what Paul's doing here. Starling argues that Paul has set up a contrast in the letter between holiness and what Paul calls fleshly wisdom, going all the way back to 1 Corinthians 1, or 2 Corinthians 1.12. Starling says the holiness and sincerity of Paul's conduct are the holiness and sincerity of God and therefore radically inconsistent with the Sophia Sarkike, the fleshly wisdom that is learned from and dependent on the powers of a world that is at war with him. And so as, and as, as an example of this, he refers to 2 Corinthians 4, 2 through 4, where uh, Paul had talked about the God of this world blinding the minds of unbelievers so that when they looked at Jesus, they couldn't see the glory there. And there are other places where Paul directly critiques flesh, as we've, as we've seen, and the self-centered self-promotion that characterizes it. Starling notes how Paul, quote, offers repeated sharp contrasts between speech and ministry katasarka, according to the flesh, and speech and ministry en Christo, in Christ. 
So what Paul has a problem with is fleshly thinking, curved in on ourselves thinking, which is in contrast to the way of the cross. In Paul's historical context, the world that he lived in, this kind of curved in thinking was embodied in pagan, sophistic thought. Starling says, the sophistic adulation of rhetorical polish and outward appearance, along with the more general Greco-Roman contempt for all things weak and servile, are what Paul has in mind here. Okay, so fleshly thinking is the wisdom of the rulers of this age that Paul has taken aim at. All right, so even though the Jewish Christian super apostles were not technically unbelievers, they had become too enmeshed in the sophistic pagan culture, and those fleshly values had corrupted their thinking. Their worldly associations had compromised the values of Jesus so that they did not think like those who are in Christ, in the holy messianic king. And Paul is concerned that the Corinthian church was similarly allowing themselves to be affected by pagan thought. The connection between opening their hearts to Paul and not being unequally yoked to unbelievers lies in the fact that pagan fleshly wisdom had, Starling here again, attached the Corinthians to the false apostles and alienated them from Paul. So by embracing the self-promoting ministry of the super apostles rather than the self-giving ministry of, Jesus, of Paul, the Corinthians were becoming mismatched with the pagans in their, in their adulation of fleshly wisdom and rhetoric and their competitive quest for status. So Paul brings this large section of the letter, which began at the end of chapter 2 and goes all the way um, here to the beginning of chapter 7. He, begins, he, he, he brings this section of the letter to its conclusion, um, and it has been a, a defense all along of his cross-shaped ministry. And he brings it to its conclusion by calling the Corinthians to open their hearts to him and not be unequally yoked to unbelievers. In Christ, in the holy messianic king, they are a covenant people of God. They are sons and daughters. They participate in the restoration of the image and glory of God so that they can be priest kings in creation. But the values of this holy messianic king, of this new creation, are cross-shaped. They're incompatible with certain fleshly pagan values. And separation, to some degree, will be required if associations and communion with the unbelieving world tempt them to adopt the values of self-centered self-assertion. There is no fellowship between the temple of God and idols.